All right, if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and turn to Titus. We're going to look at chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 15. If you have your, uh, that bulletin, I think it's page 10. Is that right? Page 10. The text is also there. Uh, we are in the midst of a dry, dusty, dead doctrine series. I'm not sure if this is the last one or next week will be the last one. not sure about that, but we definitely know today is. I think I'd, I'd like to begin uh, this way. Yeah, I th- I, I, let's do that. Well, let me tell you about something that happened this week. Those of you that know that last week was announced and I'm going to be going on sabbatical from like mid-May after a conference I'm going to be doing down about mid-August to get ready for the new year. Uh, this is what I want you to begin to be thinking about for this upcoming new year. Uh, last Thursday, a group of us, several of us, three of us, went down to look at the downtown area. And what we're wanting to do is to see the Lord open up an opportunity to have uh, another service, possibly at a Sunday evening, in that downtown area to reach a whole other group of folks. Uh, There are a lot of folks, uh, I think, in the downtown area that are very interested in Redeemer but are committed in other churches, and this might give them a way to come and say, you know, I've always heard about it. I want to check it out. I know that it's one of those different kind of churches, and maybe a Sunday evening will free that up, as well as as if, if what's being told and the vision comes true, that area is seeking to grow to 100,000 folks living in that downtown area. The developers and those that have a vision for that area, that's the desire, that's the plan, that's the goal. So it will be more of an urban setting and it will be uh, a group of folks that uh, possibly will have more of an unchurched background than a church background. We know in Waco that we are fully in the churched area. We call them the overchurch. That's mostly who we all are. That's mostly who is being reached with the gospel, so to speak. Uh, but this will give us an opportunity again to, to have more people hear the gospel and also to provide a home base to reach out into poor neighborhoods in Waco, in North Waco. All right? So I want you to know this is stuff that you can be praying for, and this is stuff that we are very, very excited about because we believe again that the vision of this church is that we are asking God to raise up 1,000 people who are self-consciously, <laughs> I know Lynn hates that, consciously building their lives around the grace of God. And we're going to hear about that third way today. There are three ways that you can build your life. Two of them are innate to you. Two of them are as easy as breathing. You don't even think about it. It's written on your DNA. It's what we naturally do if If we just are left to ourselves, we're going to do one of the two ways. We're going to do it. And each of these one of two ways could be determined by personality, nurture, growing up. Also by just self-conscious decision. You want to react against the one you had, so you go to the other one that you had. When we look at the third way, the unknown way, it's completely outside of your normal, intuitive thought processes and sensations and whatever the synapses that go on in your head and your heart. The third way is unknown. And it's that third way that we're believing God to raise up a bunch of folks, singles, 
families, children that want to be a part of learning how that happens, how to build your life around the worth and work of Jesus Christ the third way, not the other two. And I guarantee you, here's a, a prophecy from a nonprofit in the biblical Old Testament sense. I guarantee you, if God does do that, this town will never be the same. If a thousand people, if a thousand people build their lives around the gospel in a learning, messy, gutsy grace, roll up your sleeves, get into it, get into the game kind of way, this town will never be the same. And that's why we're wanting to prepare things for already a presence in the downtown area. And I know some of you are thinking, does Waco have a downtown urban area? Aha! Psychologically, maybe, maybe the downtown area substantially is not like the center of Waco. You know, where we are might be the center of Waco. But psychologically, and perhaps in the future, downtown will be again. Okay? Okay. Tension. It was so thick in the room that... Many of those in the room were so uncomfortable by it, they left the room. Those who stayed felt beads of sweat pool on their brow. They stayed because the stakes were high. And honestly, they stayed because it's, it's honestly, it's hard not to stare at a six-car pileup. It's hard not to stare at an uncoming tornado. Ask Pete how hard it is not to stare. Right? Well, where's the tension? Where's this happening? Is it the weigh-ins of two ultimate fighters getting ready to contend for the world championship? Is it the unexpected show-up of two teams that are town rivals that are going to have a showdown tomorrow, the next day they meet in this restaurant and they're going to have a showdown that defines the town bragging rights and the championship rights for the region and the county? Is that where this tension's taking place? You know where the tension's taking place? Antioch. Almost 2,000 years ago. And you know who this tension's taking place between? Two apostles of the church of Jesus Christ. They got in each other's faces. Wow. Wow. Now, some of you are thinking, no way. No way do Christians get in each other's faces. No way. Especially apostles. They, they don't get into that mess and muck of the real world. I mean, Christians, you know. You know who they are. You know who you are. You're those light, fluffy, feather-like creatures that float above victoriously above the real world. Right? That's what Christianity is. So those of you that are a little skeptical about what I just said, I want you to know on premises, I want you to know that what I'm about to read is coming from the Bible. It's not coming from a page of Lone Survivor. It's not coming from Glenn, a Vince Flynn novel. And it's not coming from 24 on Monday nights. It is coming from the Bible. Are you ready? Here it goes. When Peter, this is an apostle, one of the apostles, came to Antioch, I, 
the person speaking is Paul, who's the last apostle, opposed him to his face. You know, there are a few things. Well, there are many things, I think, in the Scripture that I wish I could have been there. This is one of them. And those who didn't know me are like, of course you'd want to be there. Right? But I really would like to see this. I would have loved to have seen this one play out for many reasons. One, one because you've got two apostles obviously facing off at each other. But two, I want to see how they faced off with each other and did it in believing the gospel. That's what I wanted to see. Because I get the facing off bit real well. It's the believing gospel part in the midst of it. We need a little work on, right? I bet you do too. Now, he opposed him because he stood condemned. For certain men came from James, which is another apostle, probably the brother Jesus. These men came from James, and Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when these folks came, he drew back and separated him from himself, fearing the circumcision party. So in other words, what happened was, Peter would act a certain way with these folks, with these Gentiles. He ate with them. He met with them. He, he was hospitable towards them. He engaged with them. He had relationships with them, friendships with them. But all of a sudden, when these circumcision folks came into town, and when they came into the church, he, he started disassociating with himself from these folks because he feared these people. Well, who are the circumcision folks? What you need to know about the circumcision folks, they're people that lead with the law. These are people who think life change comes about by keeping spiritual lists. Okay? None of us do that. These are folks that think that the way in which you connect with God and the way in which you connect with deep abiding happiness in your life and the way in which you deal with the problems in your life is through your spiritual performance. That's how you connect with God. That's how you find ultimate security and happiness. That's how when you deal with problems in your life, the answer boils down to your spiritual performance. That's who these folks are, okay? Now, oh, let's look at this. And it says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically with them. So what's happening here is, is that they moved in this direction, and all of a sudden it started influencing a lot of other Jewish folks to do the same. Now, notice that word hypocritical. I'm not saying this. The Scripture's saying this. When you lead with the law, when you build your life or look for life change in this one way we're going to look at, you're called hypocritical. And notice how catchy it is. It's very persuasive with other people. I mean, whole churches get up involved in it now. It just takes a few just takes a few that start doing it, and it's very contagious, and it starts gathering numbers real quickly, and so on and so forth. You got a lot of people, and now there's strength in numbers that start taking place. See what's happening? Oh, can you imagine? So much so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy, the text says. So if you're thinking, oh, that would never happen to me, <laughs> if it got Barnabas, it can get you. If you're thinking, no, I would never get caught up in something like that. Number one, the scripture would say, if you're thinking you never would, you probably are caught up right now. And number two, if someone as great as Barnabas, who was Paul's right-hand man, did, guess what? I mean, Barnabas and Paul were attached to the hip, and, and Paul goes, and Barnabas, they go to Antioch, and then Barnabas gets swept away with it. And Paul's left alone. Okay, so here's what Paul does. 
But when I saw that their conduct, their behavior, what they were doing, when I saw this, that it was not in step with, how would you fill in the blank? How would you do that right now? Paul, he sees this and he says, when I saw this, when I saw that their conduct were drawing, separating from other Christians, brothers and sisters, because of some spiritual performance list, when I saw this, I saw that they were not in step with, how would you fill in the blank? The law? A Christian virtue? A Christian how-to? A principle? How would you fill in the blank? Here's what Paul fills in the blank. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, that's when I went after Peter. Wow. And notice it says, the text actually says, I said to Peter before them all, when Paul went after Peter, he was not, he was not concerned whether he would embarrass Peter or not. He just went after him. Here's the point. Paul connects behavioral sin and problems and heart sin and problems and behavioral blessing or change and heart renewal or righteousness and change. Paul connects these things, the negative stuff, the stuff that's behavioral sins and, and heart problems and sins and then behavioral blessings and right ways of living and heart rightness and renewal. He connects all of these with the gospel. Do you see that? He connects it with the gospel. And this gospel way of connecting the gospel directly to ungodly behavior and an ungodly heart and to godly behavior and a godly heart, this, this is the unknown way. This is the third way of living. And the other two are real well known to us and we'll look at those in a minute. So here's a million-dollar question. How does the gospel change you? How do you live around the third way? How do we build our lives around this unknown way of relating to the grace of God? How do you do this? How do you do this with your frets and your fears? How do you do this with your explosive anger? How do you do this in your sinful impulses and sinful cravings and inner confusion that goes on in your heart? How do you do this? How do you do this with your lack of warmth and love towards others? How do you do this when you're in a relationship and you're like, I'm the only one that's loving. I'm the only one that's serving. I'm the only one that gives in this relationship. And I'm tired of it. Tired of it. How does a third way land in that part of your life? What about your bad patterns of behavior? What about your spiritual laziness? How does does the gospel do that? Well, welcome to Titus 2. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're picking up in mid-sentence. So if you look at verse 11, that 4 is telling you it's, it's something that's already come before it. And what's come before it is 1 through 10. We're not going to read that, but I'll make mention of it in a minute here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce, or that means literally to say no to, 
ungodliness. This is external behavior and worldly passions. This is inward impulses. Okay? And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives when? Notice when. In the present age. That means right now. So this is not, you know, when we get to heaven. And this is not, oh, when I get better. This is right now. This means today. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself, a people for his own possession. And notice what happens, who are zealous for good works. So Paul says to Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we acknowledge that the third way, the way that you unpack for us in this text is, is certainly outside of us. It's certainly unknown to us innately. It's not intuitive. It doesn't come natural to us. What does come natural are the other two ways. And so, Lord, we're, we're even this morning only going to hear the other two ways unless, unless you help us, unless you Give us ears to hear, and unless you actually appear. And so, oh, Prince of Glory, would you, would you show up and would you unpack the blessings of a salvation that you've accomplished? And would you unleash your Spirit on us even now? Would you fill us with your Spirit so that we do see another kingdom? another glory, another story. And in doing so, the power of God's unleashed on us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Christians aren't the only ones obsessed with life change, are we? I mean, those of us that are in the church, those of you that are visiting church today, you need to know, and you know. I mean, honestly, if we take a good look at it, we're all obsessed with life change. In the church, outside the church, everyone's obsessed with life change. I mean, how many self-help books can you get? How many books on how to improve this and improve that can you get? I mean, everyone, whether you're a Christian, you're an atheist, you're a humanist, you're a conservative, you're a liberal, whoever you are, you're obsessed with life change. We just had a political election. The whole platform was based on hope and change. Everyone... Everyone is seeking change. Everyone's pursuing change. Everyone wants change, whether it's personally, financially, relationally, socially, however way you want to look at it, we're all looking for it in some way or in some other way, okay? Now, change is not just a Christian thing, and what we're going to see in Titus 2 is that this is an unknown way of change. There are two ways that are very known to us, and I want to briefly touch on them because it's, it's acknowledging what we intuitively know, but maybe we don't really understand to what degree we are believing it and living it and practicing these other two known ways that are natural to us. The first way is kind of the default way. I mean, they're all default. In other words, again, if we're left to ourselves, you default to these two ways of living your life. If you were Jesus and you were telling a story, it would be the prodigal son story, which would be about two lost sons. We tend to always focus on the younger son as the lost son. We forget that the older son is just as lost. He's good and better, but he's lost. 
So you got to think, you know, I mean, think about this. If you're lost, do you want to be stiff and uptight and angry all the time, or do you want to be in a party? I know which one I'm at. Right? Both ways are lost. All right, the first way is the most common way for church people or for people who come from traditional, morally-based belief systems. So in other words, it doesn't need to be a, a Christian system. It doesn't need to be a... It could be an Islamic system. It can be traditionally based cultures. It can be folks that, that always long for the good old days type cultures. Well, that's the way we do it, right? These type, this type of way of building your life, I'm going to call it the be good way, all right? The be good way. The be, get, be good way works like this. First, if you were to look at your text, you got your Bible. This is where that passage is not going to help you. You got to have your Bible open for this one. The be good way only sees Titus 2, 1 through 10. It does not see Titus 11 through 15. If it misses Titus 11 through 15. See, Titus 11 through 15 begins with a 4. That 4 gives you the grounds or the basis for Titus 2, 1 through 10 to happen. What this first way does, the be good way, is it only sees 1 through 10. It only sees the exhortations of older men. Be sober-minded, not drunken-minded. Be dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. You bet, we say. You bet. And then it got to older women. Listen, you older women, be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not slaves to too much wine. That's interesting. <laughs> That's just interesting to me. Older women, watch the wine. But notice, notice, to give you a little loophole, too much wine. All right. Now, teach what is good, train young women to love their husbands and children. Now, younger women are not directly addressed, they're indirectly addressed. They're indirectly addressed in the older woman's direction. See that? Love your husbands, love your children. Give yourself to the home. And some of you are thinking, oh, I knew it. Barefoot and pregnant, stay at home. Well, let me blow your concept of home. Home doesn't, does home just mean a physical place? Your home? Or does it mean your heart's direction towards your family? And then it talks about younger men. Then it talks about Titus, what Titus is to do. Then it talks about slaves. But again, what be good folks, the be good way only sees these exhortations. It doesn't see the four, verse 11 through 15. doesn't see them. If it does see them, it, it just scatters. It just scratches the surface. It says, well, of course, you know, we do this by the power of God. And we're never really fully connected personally, clearly to what that means. It's just, of course. You know, it's that statement like when you're talking to somebody and something awful happens and you, something terrible happens to their life and then you just make this offhanded comment. Well, you know, God's sovereign, of course, through this whole thing. Oh, okay, thanks. It's just that offhand comment. Does that ever penetrate? Does that ever hit the heart? Heck no. All right. Second, be good has a specific way of viewing sin and problems. The way be good views sin and problems, it, it views sin and problems as outward acts, very voluntary conscious choices. That's how it views sin and problems. It views outward acts and very voluntary choices, choosing the wrong one when the 
alternative righteous choice could have been chosen. Okay? So you choose the wrong outward behavioral act when you could choose the alternative righteous behavioral act. That's how it views sin. All right? So it only sees the list. In chapter 2, 1 through 10, it only sees, well, older men, are you sober-minded? You either do it or you don't. Younger women, you either do it or you don't. Okay? Now, third, be good has a specific view of change. Change comes about by saying, that's wrong. (laughs) Come on, let's be honest. You either say it to yourself or you say it to others. That's wrong. And all that means is, is we end up condemning the behavior. But what tends to happen when we build our life around that way, we mutate beyond condemning the behavior, we condemn the person. Okay? And then we not only say that's wrong, our next words out of our mouth are shape up. See how that works? That's wrong, shape up. That's wrong, get, get your will to the righteous alternative. That's how you change. All right? So Christian parent, we say things like this. Johnny, lying's wrong. Christian pastor, man, pornography's wrong. My first response is, Johnny knows lying's wrong. Every man knows pornography is wrong. Knowing doesn't stop you from doing it. Christian parent then says, Johnny, don't be a liar. Be a daring truth teller. And then we bring up all these inspiring stories and examples of men who, who told the truth. Who's the guy? <laughs> George Washington, right? Tree? My kids taught me that one. And then, or if we don't go the following with the inspiring story route, we go with the belt. Soap in the mouth or my personal favorite that mom used to do. Wait till your father gets home. Those of you who have seen my dad would shiver too. Now, Christian pastor, what we say is we say, listen, man, we've got to get you an accountability group. They're going to ask you the hard questions every week. Now, the second thing I want to say to these shape-up responses is there's nothing wrong with them innately. And they have their place. There is a place to say that's wrong. There is a place to say shape up. But please hear me. If that's all you say, you deny the gospel. If that's all you say, you get the Apostle Paul in your face. Okay? Now, to no one's surprise, there's been a reaction to the be good way. There's a reaction in the church to the be good way. There's a reaction in the culture to the be good way. If we were to technically call the be good way, technically it's called moralism. Technically it's called legalism. Now those words that we use today, we just like, ah, you know, and I don't do that. Nobody does that. Hopefully you see a little more on the inside of that right now. Now there's a reaction. Swing from the first way or the older brother way. Now we go the younger brother way in the church and the younger brother way in the culture. And I'm going to call that the psyched up way. Technically, that means psychiatry and psychological science way, okay? 
What that looks like is this. In other words, first the psyched up way rightfully understands that more is going on within us than voluntary choices. The psyched up way understands that there are inner, complex troubles going on inside of us. People have complex inner troubles. We have inner impulses, cravings, desires, longings, wiring, stuff going on, complex stuff going on inside of us. You have to see that. The text points it out, and we'll see it in a second. So what psychological or psyched up way does is it does a good job of studying and identifying the more complex ways inside of us. They've done a great job of doing that. Now, what the psyched up way would never say, what I'm about to say that the scriptures say, the psyched up way would never say this, but the Bible does this when it critiques moralism. Moralism misses the deep inner hold of sin in a person's life. Moralism, or the be good way, misses the the complex, controlling, confusing hold of sin in the heart. But what the psyched up way does is it, it exposes some of the s- patterns of the inward part of the life. It does that, which is great. Now here's what's different. Second, the psyched up way's view of sin, though, is it doesn't see that as sin. It doesn't see the inward hold of sin in the inner life and the cravings and in the passions and in the desires and in the impulses. It doesn't see it as sin. It doesn't see it as a relational wrecking ball that bumps into your relationship with God and shatters it and has personal effects in shattering your life, shattering your relationships with others and shattering your relationship with the world. It doesn't see it that way. What it sees, its view of problems is it sees you as a mechanistic problem that just needs to be tweaked. The body, the person is a machine that gets out of kilter and needs to be tweaked and it needs to be fixed and then it's right and it's okay. The way it views change is this. Fix the psychological machinery. And then the next way is find personal compassion, acceptance and help and a psychiatrist, not a personal savior. Okay? So this is the reaction. These are the two ways. Within the church, without the church. These are the two ways. Now, how one guy, David Paulson, he sums up one way and two way this way. The pendulum swings from error to error, from moralism that condemns men before God to liberalism that sets men free from God. Do you see that? One's always condemning, the other is setting them free from God. One's condemning before God, the other is setting them free from God. The third way is neither. That's the way we're going to wrap up here. Here's how we're going to end. The third way is the unknown way. I want you to think of an oak tree. Oak trees leaves. Okay? When the oak tree's leaves die, they stay stuck to the branches throughout the fall and winter. Did you know that? In other words, I want oak trees in my yard. Then you'll have to rake up a lot of leaves. You got oak trees, you don't have leaves to rake up. Until spring. (laughs) Oops. But that's out of football season, so who cares? 
Right? All right, so the abuse of the cold, the beating of the wind does not force the leaves off the branches of oak trees. Do you know what finally does it? Springtime. New life. New life forces the dead leaves off the tree. My friends, that's the third way. Not not condemning, not shaping up, not psychological tricks and mechanisms. New life. Verse 11, look at verse 11. Here it is. For the grace of God appeared. That's springtime. Do you see that? The grace of God appeared. When the grace of God shows up, it's springtime. The word literally means, the Greeks used it in this way. It was the describing the, the rays of light at dawn when they just broke the surface. They broke the surface at night and just scatter the darkness. So you have the grace of God rising like the sun and forcing out the darkness, forcing out the dead leaves, bringing salvation. I mean, watch the order here. It's very, very, it's very interesting. The grace of God appeared. Now, what's the grace of God? Well, we'll see that in verses 13 and 14. It's unpacked. But look at the order here. The grace of God trains in life change. Look at this. It empowers you to say no to ungodly behavior. This is what the be good way is after. It wants to, the be good way is after godly behavior. But notice what gets you godly behavior. The springtime, the spring of the grace of God appearing forces, teaches you to say no to God, ungodly behavior. Notice what happens then. It empowers you to say no to inner impulses. That's what the psyched up way is all about. The psyched up way identifies those inner impulses, those inner cravings, those inner complexities. But notice it's only the grace of God that teaches you to say no to them. Then notice what else the grace of God does. It empowers you to live a controlled life. Now, the the words that happen, you've got self-controlled, upright, godly lives. That's hitting three areas. The first one is your personal life, self-controlled. So your personal life change. The next word, upright, is the way you relate to others. So it's talking about your relational change. And the next way, godly, is relating to your relationship with God or you're delighting in God change. I mean, brothers and sisters, if we want to be like this, the only way we get like this is by the grace of God. Do you see that? If you want the list, you list keepers, one through ten, you want that list? You're not going to get it. You're not going to get it by shaping up and then telling each other and telling me when you're wrong. You're only going to get it by the grace of God. So, my kids hear this at least once a week. They hear me say it at least once a week. And sports provides many wonderful fatherly bits of wisdom throughout the week in the Hatton household. Here's what I say. There's trained and there's untrained. That's the difference. Son, daughter. You want to swing the bat? Trained or untrained. You want to run well? Trained or untrained. 
You want to have endurance? Trained or untrained. That's the difference. Now, last fall, my two sons and I watched a movie that I'd seen a long time ago. And here we are in the midst of movie, and Danzel Washington says the same thing. My cover was blown. My fatherly wisdom of all these years finally found the source in front of my children. But my youngest son saved the day because he said, Dad, he's saying what you always say. (laughs) Yes, son. That's right. He got it from me. Right? The grace of God trains you in life change. You want real life change? There's trained and there's untrained. And only training by the grace of God gets you real life change. That's it. No other one will give it. Not the psyched up way, not the be good way. So if we are going to be a people that builds our life around the gospel, we're going to either be trained in grace or we're going to be untrained in grace. That's it. All right, I got to end. Here's how we end. You got to see how this happens. Look at the first ray of light that appears. I told you 13 and 14 unpacks the grace of God. So the grace of God appears. Remember the picture here. The grace of God appears. It's dawn. It's dawn forcing out the light, forcing out the darkness. It's spring. It's spring new life pushing out the dead leaves. What's the first ray? The first way that it happens. How does this happen to us? The first one is ray of redemption. Verse 14, look at it who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Now, there are many slivers of splendor in the grace of God. This way is focusing on one sliver. Redemption is one sliver of the ray of light. There are many words. Propitiation is another one. Justification is another one. Reconciliation is another one. Definitive sanctification is another one. Redemption is giving you one for this particular area of how you change. Now, here's the picture of of uh, redemption. It emphasizes rescue. It emphasizes redeeming. It emphasizes a deliverer. It emphasizes ransom. Okay, here's the picture. When Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he took his rightful place on the throne. When he did, when he did, the spiritual tombs and spiritual prisons were emptied. When Jesus took his place on the throne at that moment, the tombs were emptied. The prisons were emptied. What Jesus did is he came in and he broke the captivity. He broke the prison. He broke the bondage. He broke the universal dominion and hold of sin. He emptied every cell in the prison of sin. Don't miss that. He redeemed us from all lawlessness. The lawlessness is referring to sin and its orientation towards God's word, the rejection, the rebellion of God's word. Notice the words all. So every cell, the one sin that you're struggling with right now, that's included in the all, all your sins. The power of it, the captivity of it, the the dungeonness of it, the darkness of it, the universal power of it. When he rose from the dead and he sat at the right hand of the throne of God, he emptied yourself. He set you free. Do you see that? So, do you see how, how much power now is behind just say no? 
if he's broken sin's hold, its power, its universal dominion, now, now when you approach sinful behavior and you approach sin, inward impulses that are sinful, the power, the power behind saying no to them is you're no longer in the cell with it. Sure, it's still writhing around in you. Sure, there's remaining remnants of it in you. And sure, there are temporary remaining captivities that you don't know about and God is at work cleaning out in your life. But when you do battle against a specific sin, you can do battle with redemption because you can say, I'm out of that cell. I'm out of that dungeon. I am not universally dominated by it anymore. I can say no to it. Martin Luther used to say this. I mean, let's be honest. It's very easy to do this with behavioral sins, right? I mean, come on. Behavioral stuff, even if we, if we don't do something or we do something for the wrong reasons. In other words, we, we do what we're supposed to do, but we do it out of self-serving, self-glorifying motives. You know, that's sin. That's the inner impulse stuff. All right? But let's say we don't even know that's going on, but we can, we can do what's right and avoid what's wrong on a behavioral way, on a voluntary way, it's easier to do that than face the inner impulses in you, isn't it? Oh, it's much easier than to face explosive anger and defensiveness. It's much easier to face than just this instinctive, almost involuntary anxiety and fear and worry that comes over you. It's certainly easier to do than this automatic lusting and this automatic treasuring and coveting that seems to come over you, right? The unknown unbelief and reliance upon lies that are instinctive in us. Martin Luther says this, look, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can sure prevent them from making a nest in your hair. Do you see what happens? When you get redemption that you're out of the dungeon, you're out of the tomb, you're not locked in the darkness, the bars aren't closed on you, this sin does not have universal dominion over you, it is no longer your prince and lord and ruler. When you get that, you keep, you keep those birds from nesting in your heart. And you can say no to those sinful impulses. You may not nest in my heart. I feel you. You're going to be with me till the day I die. I sense your impulses. I sense your passions. I sense your desires. I see it happen. Certain situations trigger it. But I'm saying because I'm redeemed, no, to them. See that? All right. Can you give me one more minute? This is good, isn't it? This is good stuff. You didn't realize the gospel was this powerful. But how do you go from the power to do battle with these sins to the want to? Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can do the power part. You know, you got the power part. All right, I'm no longer captive, so I can say no to this stuff. It's going to be with me the day that I die, but I'm not going to let it make a nest in my heart. And then I become aware that I've got nests in my heart, and how do I do battle with them? I've got to know that I've been set free from them, and that's how the grace of God is unleashed on those remaining captivities that you're dealing with right now. But how do you get your, your heart to say, I want it. I want it. Do you remember the first person you had a crush on? 
you know, the first person that was immensely attractive to you. Do you remember that person? What if that person came up to you and said, I love you? How hard is it to respond back in love? Some of you are struggling with understanding this. You can ask my wife. She can tell you what it feels like. You guys didn't get that. That's okay. (laughs) The most beautiful, attractive person in all of heaven and earth treasures you. Loves you. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession. The literal translation is to purify for himself a treasured people. It's from Deuteronomy. Do you know how you want to? When you realize that the most glorious, infinitely, immensely attractive, beautiful person in all of heaven and earth loves you first. Treasures you. And what do you do? You're zealous for good works, you love back. That's what you do. If you get that out of line... You go to one way or the other way. The be good way or the psyched up way, you don't go the grace way. Okay? All right, I've got to end. El Nino's rains deluged Southern California. Remember that? A while back? That hurricane that brought all those rains. One family was still in their home when it happened. And when it happened, a a wave of mud tore through their house, separated their house in two, and separated the family from the sleeping baby in the other room and swept away into the night into the mud. Can you imagine parents? Well, what do you think those desperate parents did? Well, of course they did. They did what you and I would do. They searched all night. They called all night. They didn't have any voice left. They called all night into the night, crying out for their child. They romped through the mud. They dug in the muck and the mire. They were relentless all night. They spent themselves till there was nothing more spent, till they were completely exhausted. The end result, no baby. When dawn, the first rays of dawn, came that next morning, a rescue worker showed up, covered in mud, head to toe. Couldn't tell if he was white, black. You couldn't see anything. You don't know who he is. And he's got this cradle bundle in his arms. And it's their baby. Alive, but really messed up. What do you think the mom did? Oh, that baby's filthy. That mom clung to that filthy baby because that baby was her treasure. And then what do you think the mom did? Get that filth off her. And then what do you think that mom did? Determined. Determined to keep her child from the mud for the rest of the days of their life. My Christian friends, do not miss the first part of verse 14 where it says that God gave himself for us. The most beautiful, attractive, immensely so person in all of heaven and earth went into the filth, went into the prison, went into the tombs for you to set you free. 
How did he do it? How could he set you free? What was the ransom? What was the price of your freedom and my freedom? He gave himself. He gave everything he had because you're his treasure. If we get that, we love back. We love each other. We, we tie arms and in a gutsy grace community, we get after it. That's what we do. We're zealous, as the text says, for good works. Amen.